CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. In 1920, African-American farmers owned 14 percent of all American farmland. Today, that is just 2 percent. The vast majority of them are in the South, according to census data drawn from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The book Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farms' Practical Guide to Liberation of the Land, encourages a new generation of black farmers. Author and Soul Fire Farm co-founder Leah Penniman places ownership of land and production of healthy food squarely on the path of self-determination for people of color. And she joined us via Skype from Petersburg, New York, to talk about it. Leah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for being here. And you actually grew up in rural Massachusetts, surrounded by forest. And increasingly, I think, in that part of the world, second homes. Tell us a little bit about your childhood there. Well, I grew up in a very poor, working-class white town in the forest of central Massachusetts. And our family was the only mixed-race family in town for almost all of my childhood. So needless to say, in such a conservative area, uh, peers were cruel and friends were hard to come by. And so my siblings and I found solace in connecting with the natural world. And it became the foundation of a lifelong commitment to environmental stewardship and relationship with the land. Did you ever think of yourself becoming a farmer? Oh, no. No, my grandparents fled the red clays of the South and tried to get as far away as they could from that life of stooping and sharecropping. And so I envisioned myself as, you know, an environmental scientist or wildlife biologist. I had never considered farming as a young person. And you first became involved with farming and food justice. This is through a project, the Food Project in Boston, Massachusetts. What does food justice mean for you? Well, Food justice is not just access to food, not just having enough calories and vitamins and minerals. It's really about agency and self-determination in the food system. It has to do with ownership of land, fair wages and good working conditions for farm workers, and the ability to have diets that are culturally relevant um, and that bring nourishment and life for our people. Well, you do quote somebody, I can't remember who it is in the book, that says, you can be killed by a gun or killed by bad food. Do you, do you think people in especially contemporary America associate food with activism? You know, a lot of people look at me with surprise when I talk about racial injustice in the food system because they never think about food as a political issue. But of course, it very much is. I mean, everything from the skewed uh, racial divisions in land ownership in this country, where well over 90, 95% of the rural land is controlled by white folks, to the fact that if you're a person of color, you know, you're you only have a 25, you're only 25% as likely to have a supermarket in your neighborhood as a white person. And so all along the entire food system, there's racial schism and there's disadvantage for folks of color. So it's a very political sphere. So it is political and it is contemporary. But as you are working on other rural farms in the Northeast after the food project, this was for you kind of an awakening to understanding sustainable agriculture differently. How did you, how did your own process evolve? Mm. Well, I'll tell you from the very first time that the smell of cilantro lingered in the creases of my fingers after that first day at the food project, I was totally hooked on farming. Hmm. It was a space where I could 
do what the two things I love most. I could care for the environment and I could stand up for justice in the community because we took all of that produce and we, you know, served it at low income farmers markets and and in soup kitchens and so on. And so I continued to farm, but it was disillusioning, honestly, um, in my later teens and early, early 20s, because unlike the food project, most farms were very white spaces. And I started to feel like a traitor to my people that I had to choose between the earth and racial justice. I didn't see another intersection until, you know, until we created it. And you did create that in uh, Soul Fire Farm in upstate New York. And the photographs, this is a, a book. It's like a practical guide. You get, you know, advice on finding land and financing and purchasing and planting fruit trees and all sorts of things, establishing land trust, determining slopes for irrigation. What for you, Leah, was the biggest revelation or learning curve? Oh, my goodness. So many. I mean... This land first claimed us back in 2006, and we had very little pocket money. We'd been saving by having our family of four live in a, you know, one room all together, these <laughs> dilapidated buildings, and and this land was what we could afford. And the the reason that we really started it in the first place is because it was very difficult for us to get food to eat for our own children living in the south end of Albany, which is what the USDA terms a food desert. And our neighbors started clamoring and saying, we need you to start a farm that will bring food to us, to our block, to our doorsteps. So that was our vision. And we were we were pretty naive about the amount of work it would take and the cost. And even with a decade of farming experience, you know, it was it was a lot. So I would say the biggest learning curve was the amount of grit that it takes to really actualize a vision of food justice, not just theorize about it. Well, and there's a lot of practical tips and resources in the books and a lot of photographs of you all farming. And you just look impossibly sparklingly healthy and happy. <laughs> But, but there is like a, a strong collective. We get a lot of history here of, for example, black tenant farmers unions, cooperatives among black farmers and land trusts, like the New Communities Farm Collective in southwest Georgia. This was started in 1969. Tell us about the founding of that and what were the founders aiming for? Absolutely. Well, I've, I've had the blessing and privilege to get to know Mama Shirley Sherrod in the past few years and have been at some convenings of black farmers in the state of Georgia uh, discussing the, our future on land. But this project started well before I was born in 1969. And uh, Shirley Sherrod and Charles Sherrod and many others, in fact, 500 black families got together and said, we need a way uh, to have more self-sufficiency because as sharecroppers and tenant farmers, we're noticing that as soon as we get involved in civil rights, we are kicked off of our lands and out of our homes by the white landowners. And so we need a space of our own. And they traveled to Israel and other places around the world to see models of collective land ownership and settled on creating the very first community land trust. They had almost 6,000 acres in Albany, Georgia. As I mentioned, 500 families. They were running a farm, building houses. Um, and that was a big threat to the status quo in the white supremacist South. And so they experienced a lot of violence. Um, in fact, bombing and diluting of their fertilizers um, and eventually lost their land. And they, they became some of the lead plaintiffs in suing the federal government for discrimination in the Pigford v. Glickman case, which which became the largest civil rights settlement in the history of this country. Yeah. Give us a little bit of background on this case. Absolutely. So, you know, for folks who don't know, farming is a highly subsidized and highly 
regulated industry. And so the U.S. Department of Agriculture and its big piece of legislation, the Farm Bill, provide billions of dollars of support for farmers. You know, everything from crop insurance to uh, loans, crop allotments, technical assistance. And, and these are entitlement programs. Farmers are supposed to be able to get them. But because they're controlled at the county level and uh, people's individual and collective bias can creep in, what's happened over the decades is black farmers have been excluded from these programs. So, you know, there'll be a drought and a white farmer will go into the county office and get a nice loan for irrigation and a black farmer will have their application denied. And the cumulative effect of this was the loss of 14 million acres of land through foreclosure and displacement. So farmers got together finally and said, this is enough. You know, in 1962, the U.S. Commission of Civil Rights found that the federal government was the number one cause of the decline of the black farmer. Um, it took decades to pull together the evidence, but eventually the USDA, you know, admitted that that they were at fault and, and paid $2 billion to the claimants um, in 1999. Go. It was too little too late because these farmers were in their 90s and they each got $50,000 and so on. Uh, but it was important symbolic victory to say, you know, we didn't leave the land volunteer voluntarily. It really was um, a refugee crisis, essentially a foreclosure crisis. Right. So this was, you know, not just your opinion or the opinion of activists, but this was found uh, the data was all pulled together and the court of law settled for the plaintiffs. But how about opportunities after Pigford? Has anything changed inside of those policies? That's a great question. You know, to the USDA's credit, some things certainly have changed. Um, the 2501 program, which is for disadvantaged farmers, including minority farmers, you know, has some increased funding. They are paying attention and collecting more statistics around uh the race and ethnicity of folks who are receiving funding. But, you know, uh, together with Yes Magazine just a couple of years ago, we did a little number crunching to see if the actual result was different in terms of who was getting the funds. And there still is a lot of disparity in all of the programs except for the EQIP, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, there is racial disparity in all other programs. So there's a long way to go, even though the intention is now there. Um, yeah, and we did meet in the South, you know, something that that I love, I love to think about is my generation as the returning generation of black farmers. Mm. You know, our, our grandparents fled the South and we're now realizing that, that our grandparents left a little piece of our heritage, our culture, even our souls behind. And we're looking to reclaim that. So the big work right now is to get these northerners, many, many of whom are urban and who are getting a start in urban farming, to connect with the, the legacy farmers in the South and try to figure out things like land transfer and skills transfer. The average age of black farmers in the U.S. is now 62, and we're talking with Leah Penniman, who's urging a new generation of people of color to farm, not just for food production, but for liberation, as she says, continuing an historical legacy of farming while black, and that is the name of her new book. But, but let's get to that, uh, Leah. I mean, besides policies dissuading black farmers, how about that perception, maybe particularly in the South, that Farming is too country, too mired in associations of poverty and limited choices. And as you said, you know, stooping over the fields. Mm, oh, that is so true. You know, as my good friend, urban farmer Chris Bolden Newsom says, the land was the scene of the crime. Mm. But I would add to that the land was not the criminal. You know, so while we did experience hundreds of years of slavery and sharecropping and tenant farming and violence when we tried to own our own land, driving us off, that's not the whole history. You know, if we reach back beyond and around that, we have thousands of years of noble legacy of being connected to and innovating on land. You know, everything from vermicomposting, which is composting with worms, to raised beds, to rotating crops, 
These have roots in African agricultural wisdom. And that's the part of the story that's not often told. And a big part of why I wrote Farming While Black was to uplift these noble and dignified narratives of the way we've been connected to land as Black people. Well, and some of the examples you give in addition to Soul Fire Farm are the Kombahee River, am I saying that right? Kombahee River community? <laughs> I think you got it. <laughs> Tell us about the women in this community and what they stood for. Oh, I mean, there were just so many examples of collective land ownership and farming going back. So this was during the Civil War. You know, a lot of men were away fighting and the women said, you know, we're not going to work for white folks. We're actually going to go get our own lands and create our own enterprises and work together. And they became a model and an inspiration for many generations to come. You know, they were an inspiration to Fannie Lou Hamer, who started the Freedom Farm Cooperative. Um, they were an inspiration to the Rap Road community in Albany, which were some Mississippi sharecroppers who came up to our area and formed their own community. And so uh, there's a lot of examples of, of autonomy and collectivism throughout our history. And individuals like Mama Isola, who's now 80, um, she led a workshop on pickling that you write about in the book. Is it, is it hard to find people with institutional knowledge like her now? Mama Isola, who is a wonderful, wonderful elder, you know, she grew up in a time where they grew everything. You know, the only thing they went to the store to buy was sugar and flour and everything else from the hogs to the vegetables was grown on the farm. Uh, so she came to our farm and, and taught us how to can and pickle and uh, preserve our food. And it was just so wonderful because while you can learn those things on the internet, there is so much cultural knowledge that's passed on when you get face to face with an elder. And elders are not hard to find. In fact, I think that a big mistake that the younger generation of activists makes is ignoring and excluding and invisibilizing our elders. And we need to make sure that we are sitting at their feet and not making the same mistakes they did because we actually take the time to listen to them. But you also use YouTube videos for your education, right? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> Getting it from everywhere. But this is interesting, you know, when in that segment, and of course I was reading about fermentation again, because fermentation is a thing, but you bring up this association of healthy cooking and food preservation as a white people thing. How do you, you know, undo that kind of association? How do you build a different narrative? I mean, it's a great question because it really is a myth that healthy cooking and preservation is a white people thing. You know, Fannie Lou Hamer said, if you have 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, nobody can push you around or tell you what to do. So we have a legacy of making healthy foods. You know, I a big shout out to the Old Ways um, organization because they've created food pyramids based on African heritage cooking and, and other cuisines around the world to remind us that, you know, it's not the USDA that's defining what healthy is that our ancestors really have known. And, and the way that we shift that is by actually creating those culturally relevant foods in a healthy manner. Like we don't need it to be kale salad and sunflower butter around our table. You know, we can we can make our derriac pois, we can make our pois congo, like our Haitian foods, using these local healthy vegetables. And that's familiar to our palates and to the palates of our children, and they will embrace that. Well, there's so many aspects to this. In fact, there's a chapter in the book on healing from trauma. Uh, can, would you talk to us about how farming can be both healing and in some ways re-traumatizing and, and how you have been able to find healing? Well, yeah, something that's been really amazing is we've been running um, these week-long beginner farmer training programs now for several years. We've had 500 people come through. And I started out being very focused, exclusively focused on teaching folks things like cation exchange capacity and how to interpret your soil test. But then in the feedback forums, people would say, you know, after a week on the land, 
I'm going to put down my cigarettes or my marijuana and not do that anymore. I'm going to leave this toxic, abusive marriage. I'm going to leave this dead end job. I'm not settling anymore. So on and so forth. And I'm like, what is going on here? And this gets, this diverges from the science a bit, but I really believe what our ancestors have believed that, that the earth herself is alive, not just a material being, and that she has lessons for us about who we're meant to be and that we belong and how to heal. So when we actually make that introduction back to the land and we have our bare feet on the earth and we breathe that fresh air, there's a remembering of things we didn't know we forgot and a healing that just emerges. And I wouldn't say this if it hasn't happened a thousand times, but it has every single time. So I really do think that when we're able to come to land on our own terms, like we chose, no one made us come and we're growing food for our own communities, um, the land is able to do that healing and it's actually not re-traumatizing. It's, it's profoundly spiritual, it's profoundly emotional, and it's really where we need to be headed as a people. Well, Leah Penniman, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Leah Penniman is co-founder of Soul Fire Farm. Her most recent book is called Farming While Black. Just ahead, go inside this weekend's Momocon with voice actor Bob Carter. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more of On Second Thought. when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.